0: Welcome to the Unveiling Grace podcast, a place to find freedom from the shame and pressure of performance-based religion. Enjoy another episode with Lynn Wilder and Joel Grote as they and their guests share personal stories and wisdom from the Bible that just might surprise you. We invite you to experience a grace that heals.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another Unveiling Grace podcast. So glad once again, you've decided to join us. We've got a great episode. I'm Joel Groat.
2: And I'm Lynn Wilder. And we have with us today an old friend of ours, Chip and Jamie Thompson are with a ministry in Utah called Try Grace. And they took Mike and myself and a handful of other people to Israel a few years back. Um, Going to Israel changed my heart and mind, and I think everyone who's investigating biblical faith should make a trip to Israel. One of my favorite things that's happened over the years is there was a BYU religion professor who went to Israel one time, was so enthralled with Israel, ended up staying a whole year, realizing there was evidence for the Bible everywhere. Giving me a call, leaving the Mormon church and finding Jesus. She's now a politician, believe it or not. (laughs) That's Um, wild. Israel is full of evidence for the Bible. So, Chip, why don't you introduce yourself, Chip Thompson, and tell us what you'd like us to know about your ministry? You've been in Utah, in a beautiful part of Utah, for a long time now.
3: Yeah, my name is Chip Thompson. Uh, we've been in Utah for 30 years. We moved here in 1991. Wow. And we were, we were sent by a church called Emmanuel Bible Church as missionaries uh, to bring the gospel to the people of Utah. And so we've been doing that for 30 years. Um, in, that, in that time period, the Ephraim Church of the Bible was founded. And our ministry called Tri-Grace Ministries was founded. Um, within that, we have a, a club at Snow College, which is um, the first Christian club. ever be started on that campus and so we have a solid uh very vibrant university club going there we have a a christian coffee shop which is kind of interesting because when we started that we bought this house and a bunch of people helped us buy the house and they said so what are you going to do with it we said well we're going to start a coffee shop and they always got this (laughs) this funny look on their face and they said well you know mormons don't drink coffee right we're like yeah like, well, why are you starting a coffee shop? And I said, well, we, we know there are people that are questioning and we want to bring them out of the woodwork. We want to meet them. And this is a good way for us to know who's on the fringe and who's not. And so that has been working very well. And uh, today our coffee shop is just thriving and we're so busy. We almost are trying to slow it down. So we're, we're really thankful for that. So yeah, we've been in ministry to the Mormons for a over, little over 30 years.
2: Cool. And what I love about you is that you have a heart for the evidences for the Bible. And in your many trips to Israel, you've brought back pottery and all kinds of artifacts. And so yes. we're going to talk today about why somebody would consider the Bible to be reliable and what kind of evidences there might be.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, there's there's mountains of evidence for the Bible. One of them that I think is vitally important is our manuscript evidence. And I I think that if you are familiar with the LDS faith at all, you know that the only manuscript they have is a handwritten manuscript of Joseph Smith's. They have nothing that predates Joseph Smith, and uh, supposedly the gold plates that the Book of Mormon came from were taken back to heaven, so we don't have those to look at. So basically, we have no ancient manuscripts to look at. With the Bible, we've got tens of thousands of ancient hand-copied manuscripts. And those manuscripts and the history behind those manuscripts, they, they prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Bible has never been altered in a sinister way. There are minor um, variants that copyists made mistakes as they were copying things, but nothing intentionally to change doctrine or to change commandments or to change principles sought in the Bible. So essentially, we can prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that the The Bible that we read today is exactly the same message as it was in Jesus Christ's time
1: and before that. Yeah. Yeah. And what's what's really cool about that is we have the testimony of Jesus himself for the Old Testament because Jesus talks about, he quotes from it extensively. And with especially the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, manuscripts that predate Jesus being able to compare those to what we had, it's been preserved. God's kept His word intact and reliable. So, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating area of study and and really breeds so much confidence. And when you go to the Bible, you know you've got what God wanted recorded. You we've got what He wants us to know, right?
2: And yeah,
1: especially, well, I was gonna say, especially with the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you get to the prophecies of
3: Jesus. Uh, it answers a bunch of questions, because the prophecies that Christians have been claiming prove Jesus is the Messiah, we can now prove they preexisted Jesus. They, they're in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were written before Jesus was born, so they couldn't have been anything that was added later by Christians to try to make it look like Jesus was something that he wasn't. Uh, Jesus really was what the Bible per- portrayed him to be, so.
2: And we address this often on this podcast, the reason being something that you, have, you are well aware of, living among the Mormons. How would you say your college students who were questioning their faith from the Mormon um, faith view the Bible?
3: Um, well, I'll just say what they say. They say, well, the Bible's true so far as it's translated correctly. And then I always ask, well, do you think it was translated correctly? And they'll always say, well, no, everybody knows that corrupt priests changed the Bible. And then I just say, well, we can prove that that didn't happen. I, You know, you can think that if you want to, and that's what you've been taught, but it's not true. And I can prove that it's not true uh, to you. We can just go in the other room. We've got a Bible museum, and we can use that to show them that there's absolutely no way that the Bible's
1: been corrupted. So what what do you have in the Bible museum that especially would point to something like that? Is there anything you can share? And and I should say right now for our audience, uh, if you're listening to this on the radio or if you're listening to it audio, Chip's gonna make reference to a number of artifacts, things that he's got. And so um, if you're hearing just the audio, know that if you go to our unveilinggracepodcast.com website with the show notes for this episode, we'll have all the photos, everything that he's gonna be talking about showing. Uh, that, that'll all be there for you to take a look at. So uh, for those who are watching on YouTube, you're gonna be able to see it in real time for those listening to the audio just know that those resources that we're referring to are going to be there
3: right and and if you ever want to if you live in the area you're welcome to come to our cafe in Ephraim and see our museum and we'll show you everything we're talking about here but the the specific artifacts or the specific display that we're talking about is a display that highlights an event that happened in 70 AD in Israel And so if you understand what the Book of Mormon says about the Bible and how the Bible was changed by corrupt priests, very early in the Book of Mormon in 1 Nephi chapter 13, it talks about many plain and precious truths being removed from our Bible. Mm -hmm. And that happened, it says very specifically in that chapter, after the apostles passed the, the scriptures on to the Gentile church, this corruption took place. So an event that happened in 70 AD, which was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, solidifies for us a time period when we can look at and say after that time period, we can prove no, no artifact or no, uh, manuscripts were changed in any significant way. And so what happened yeah. in that is that's when the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried. When the Romans marched into Judea, the Jews living in the Qumran community buried their scrolls in caves and sealed the entrances. And those remained sealed until 1947 when they were discovered. And so, uh, We can look at the Old Testament there, and every book of the Old Testament has been discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, with the exception of Esther. And so we can look at the the manuscripts that we have and compare them with what we have today, and there's no differences between the Old Testament text that they have in the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we have today. And then in exactly the same way, slightly different, but in the same way, the New Testament was scattered all over the world at that point, point in history. So when the Romans started persecuting the Christians, the the Christians fled. And when they fled, we know that they copied the letters of the apostles and took them with them. And those letters were scattered all over the ancient Roman world. And we have manuscripts from those different areas today that um, we can can examine from very early, from second century. Um, We can examine these manuscripts and realize that no changes have been made to the New Testament as well. So that's how we prove that to people.
2: Now, an argument that's often brought to me, both by atheists and by Mormons, is that these changes happened at the Council of Nicaea. That's too that, late, because right. we have many,
3: we have many manuscripts that predate that. So if they,
1: if it happened at the Council of Nicaea, we would see major differences in the text, and we just can't. We, there, that doesn't exist. So. so you're saying we have manuscripts from before the Council of Nicaea, and we have manuscripts. Post Council of Nicaea, yes, you can put those together, and you can say uh, no, there aren't. If there were changes made, they would show up in these later manuscripts. Yeah, and that is a very common objection that gets used. So,
2: for some listeners who may not know, tell them what the Council of Nicaea is and when it was.
3: Yeah, most most Mormons that I know believe that the the canonization of the scriptures happened at the Council of Nicaea, which is, it didn't happen. They never even, they never even talked about the canonization of the scriptures at Nicaea. Um, What what the Council of Nicaea was convened for was a controversy called the Arian Controversy. And that controversy had to do with the person of Jesus Christ and whether or not he was uh, eternally God in nature or whether he was a created being and Arius who started this Arian controversy. Arius believed Jesus was a created being, that he had a beginning, and the rest of Christianity said, no, Jesus did not have a beginning. He's an eternal being. And so that council solidified that. And I'll just say at the council, there was approximately 318 bishops. Uh, some, Some accounts have a little less than that, but that's what the official count is. And of those 318 bishops, only two didn't sign the Council of Nicaea, the the Nicene Creed, Um, all the others signed it, they all agreed with it. And those two include, and and plus Arius uh, were then banished because they were believing something that was not biblically true. Yeah.
2: Those manuscripts all existed and were all together long before that council and were being passed around and had been canonized, if you want to use those terms, within the early church.
3: Yeah, it's, it's really misleading to say that books were removed from the New Testament, That never happened. And it's yeah. also misleading to believe that there was a council that focused on the canonization of the New Testament. There really wasn't any council that convened to talk about that. It happened naturally. It happened um, as a gradual process within the church. Um, and it was kind of a, a consensus of the church that they all were using the same manuscripts. So they all believe they were true true manuscripts and it didn't ever really get voted on there's there's only a few books that were kind of decided at at one at some point that they really weren't inspired scripture uh for various reasons uh apostolic authorities one of them that there was no proof that the the apostles had any part in writing those so
1: yeah and for those who want to pursue this subject further because it can get kind of deep and there's a lot of documentation Um, I can put links to articles we have right on our IRR website that deal specifically with this process and where they're lost books and where they're added. So if someone wants to go into that further, um, we can give you the tools to further research that. Um, The other like villain in this whole story of canonization is often um, Constantine. Right. And the the common allegation understanding is that Constantine was the one who decided what books were going to be in the Bible, and so he kind of like heavy-handedly... But here's the thing. The only thing Constantine ever did related to the Bible was he commissioned copies of the scriptures to be made and written so they could be further spread. And so if people say, well, how did Constantine get involved? Well, Constantine got involved because as the emperor, he had the authority and he had the funds to say, let's get more copies of the scriptures out. But he in no way was controlling what was going to be included in those. He was entrusting that to the leaders of the church and to those books and manuscripts that had been already accepted to have scriptural authority. So,
3: yeah, Yeah, you know, I have
1: a friend in Israel named
3: Joel Kramer. Uh, He's the archeologist that I've worked with the most. And he says that he, this is something he says, he says, Constantine gets a bad rap because all of the emperors before Constantine, they built temples to honor themselves as gods. Mm-hmm. Constantine yes. tore down Roman temples that that worship pagan gods, and in their place, he built basilicas to honor Jesus. And so he was he was the most revolutionary Roman emperor that ever existed, because he did not build those basilicas in honor of himself. He built them in honor of Jesus, and so he he transitioned the the, the empire into a
1: Christian believing empire rather than a pagan believing empire. Yeah. So, Chip, um, I'm really interested in seeing some of these artifacts. Um, I have never yeah. been to Israel. It's on my bucket list. I really hope to go someday. Oh. And so I'm, I'm always <laughs> I, I fascinated. I love, I love when I'm there oh. in, in Ephraim to visit the cafe and the museum. One, because you guys have got phenomenal coffee always, but then um, <laughs> but then that whole display. So go ahead and introduce us to some of these key pieces and, and tell us what's significant about them.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Pottery fascinates me because it doesn't degrade. It just remains. It's it's the same. So, For instance, here, this is an oil lamp from the time of Abraham. So this oil lamp is 4,000 years old. It probably probably sat in a tomb somewhere for thousands and thousands of years until somebody found it, and I bought it in Israel. So this dates to the time of Abraham, 4,000 years ago.
1: I really hope you're, I hope you're holding that over something soft and not over (laughs)
3: tile. (laughs) Yeah. And then this is from the time period of King David. So this is another oil lamp. It's from Hebron and the spout, the spout would be right here where the wick would be. And this actually dates to the time period when David was in Hebron. So I I like to imagine that it's possible and it is possible, but not probable that David could have used this at this lamp because it was in Hebron at the time period when David lived there. Mm. So that's what we're talking about. This is a, a handle, um, a broken handle. So it's, it's a piece of a handle. But what's interesting about this, and I don't know if you can see it, but right here is a finger impression. Can you oh. see that finger oh, yeah. impression? Yeah, yep. All right. So these handles were, there was a lot of question about what they were. And they're, they're found all over Israel. And when they excavated a particular site called the Elah Fortress, which is in the valley where David and Goliath fought their battle, um, they found a whole bunch of pots that had these finger impressions in them in a fortress that was built by King David. And then they understood that these, these pot handles were created to collect taxes for King David. And they were marked with the finger impression to let everybody know that if it has a finger impression on it, that belongs to King David, you don't touch it. So that's what these handles are. And they date clear back to 3000 BC when, when David lived and was king in Israel.
2: But so, that's not wow. David's hand impression, is it? Mm, probably
3: not. <laughs> <laughs> he probably had slaves doing that or servants doing that for him. Wow. But yeah, um, so I, I have a whole bunch. This, this is something that's very specific. And if you can see this on this is a, is a signet seal. So can you see that on there?
0: There's, yeah, a, stamp. You can... there's, uh-huh. a,
3: there's a stamp on it. So this is Hezekiah's seal, and uh, it's on this pot handle, if you can see the seal on there. And Hezekiah had these pots created before the Assyrians marched into Israel and destroyed the, the, the fortified cities. He created them to put into the cities for grain to be collected so that the people could then go into the cities and hopefully hold off the Assyrian army, but it didn't work. Yeah. And so wow. almost almost all of these pot handles are broken because the Assyrians destroyed all these cities, all mm-hmm. except for one city. It's one of the stories we like to talk a lot about. Right. So, so anyway, those are a few, few pieces of pottery from our museum. And I'll tell you, we have we have real authentic pottery from 80 different biblical
1: sites in Israel in our museum. So there's a lot to look at. Okay. And I'm I'm because I know everything you do is above board and everything, but how do you so? How do you get these pieces of pottery? Do you purchase these when you do tours? Can you pick them up off the ground? Um, you talked about Joel Kramer, who's there as an archaeologist. So how does a person get a four thousand year old oil lamp from like the time of Abraham to just like have to show? Yeah, um,
3: Israel still has an open antiquities market, so I bought that. I bought okay. it in Samaria from a from a dealer in Samaria, um, but. I have a friend in Israel named his Zach. He runs an antiquity shop in the old city of Jerusalem. He's actually a Palestinian evangelical Christian. He's a, he's a really great guy. And every year I go there, he says, Chip, you can take anything <laughs> you find because it's written into our laws that tourists can take what they find home with them. And really? so I've been okay. doing that since 2008. I've been taking pottery home with me and I've never been even stopped. I've been questioned a couple of times on a couple of things that I had, I have a brick from Jericho and it's a big solid brick. I actually have it here with me. I'll show it to you later. Okay. But wow. um, they questioned me a lot about that brick because they were fearful that it could be a bomb of some kind. And so they had bomb dogs there sniffing and they had they, they went through all kinds of security, but normally they don't even question anything I bring out. It just have it's in my suitcase. I bring it out and they just let it go through. Okay. So what so, is
1: the... Go ahead, Lynn, you go first.
2: Well, I wanted to talk about Jericho because that was one, that was something I came home just blown away. Uh-huh. So Chip takes us there, shows us the layer where they're doing excavation, and you can see where Joshua went in and destroyed Jericho, and God told him, well, they burned the city, but not to take anything, right? Right, And yes. so you could see um, clay pots that had had grain in them that were charred, and yet the grain was still there. I was, I'm blown away, right? And this was (laughs) thousands of years ago. It's like, and it's right there. And you and Joel are telling us that, oh my goodness, the local folks are trying to cover all this up, right? In fact, we have a piece of pottery from there that that's yeah. one of my favorite things in the whole world.
3: <laughs> yeah, so Jericho, it is the number one city that should be used to prove how detailed and accurate the Bible is. And unfortunately because it's in the Palestinian district and the Palestinians don't want to give any claim to the land to Israel, it's right. become one of the greatest problems within biblical archaeology, not not because of the archaeology but because of The fact that they're trying to hide the archaeology that would show that Israel once conquered the city. And so from the Uh, city, I'll I'll just show you what I have here. So I have one of the bricks from the walls of Jericho that came tumbling down. So this this is what I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. So this is this is a brick from Jericho, actually, probably a fourth of a brick from Jericho. (laughs) Oh, my and uh, that's what I had a lot of trouble bringing through the security because they were afraid <laughs> what that might be. But I also have like, this is a, a handle from Jericho. This is a, a late Bronze Age handle, a pot handle. This was destroyed by Joshua. <sighs> and, and so the, the thing that we have in Jericho is the Bible tells us when Jericho was destroyed, which was in 1406 B.C., which is the late Bronze Age. And so if you look into the burn layer, so the Bible says Joshua burned Jericho with fire Mm -hmm. and God commanded them not to plunder the city. Mm -hmm. So in 1406 B.C., you have this incredible burn layer that's a a meter deep. Um, This right here, if you can see this, this is ash from Joshua's burn layer. It's It's in this pot. Oh, wow. So this black ash is from Joshua's burn layer. And in that burn layer, as Lynn already mentioned, there are pots with grain in them and they find more burned grain in Jericho than in any other city in the Middle East that they've excavated because God told them not to plunder the city. So I have here some pieces of pottery that this is the outside of the pot and you can see it's blackened, it's burned on the outside of the pot. And then this is the inside of the pot and you can see it's black on the inside as well. So can you see those?
1: Yep. So oh, yeah,
3: those pots had grain in them. If, if I could test this burn, it would be barley because the Bible tells us they burned the city in the spring of the year and all of these pots were full of barley. So they had yeah. just harvest, they had just harvested the barley in the spring of the year in 1406 BC. They burned the city. They didn't plunder it. The wall collapsed exactly the way the Bible describes all the way around the city with one exception. And the German team that excavated in the early 1900s found one section of the wall with intact houses still on them. And we have pictures of that. I I didn't I I could I could give you that picture. You can insert it. There's a there is a a picture of a house sitting on the wall that has a window. And the Bible says Rahab let the let the spies spies out of a window and her house was sitting on the wall. So by process of elimination, that probably was her house. Oh.
2: Yeah, so the um, evidence
3: is just amazing.
2: God is so good. And we are at the end of this episode. Oh my, so we, we are. All my heart. Do, <laughs> we're going to do at least one more. But I want to tie up by saying this. How many archaeological digs are there that prove the Old Testament alone? There are at least 30,000 <laughs> such digs that prove... The, the people and the places and the events of the Old Testament happened. How many now archaeological digs are there for the Book of Mormon?
1: Like still none. Silence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Something to think about. Well, thank you so much, Chip. Mm-hmm. We will talk again soon. Grace yeah, my- and peace.
1: I'm looking forward to it. So long.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Unveiling Grace podcast. You can find show notes and leave us your comments and questions at unveilinggracepodcast.com. We would love to hear how the podcast has helped you. We are so grateful for you, our listeners, and the donations that keep us on the air. To say thank you, we are offering a free gift with a donation of any amount. Just go to unveilinggracepodcast.com and click on the free gift button to get yours. Thanks for joining us on the Unveiling Grace Podcast, where you can experience a grace that heals.